The rest of us this morning are going to be talking about the ever-present danger and the ever-present tragedy that we face or the challenge that we face of, of having Christianity lose sight of Christ. What happens when Christians or Christianity lose sight of Christ? It sounds pretty strange. It sounds pretty awkward if you ask me. Christianity losing sight of Christ? That statement doesn't even make sense. And it doesn't make sense. But we always are facing this danger. It never goes away. Every generation faces it. Losing sight of the very one we're supposed to have our attention riveted upon. And so time and time again, I like to come back to this because I know it is always the danger that is there for us. So we won't uh, wrap up our study of Ecclesiastes today, uh, but what we will do is talk about not losing sight of Christ or the danger of losing sight of Christ. And I want to begin by a favorite quotation of mine, uh, not because of what, uh, because it says something good, but because it, it's such a helpful way of putting things when it comes to Christianity losing sight of Christ. It's, it's from David Wells in his uh, book, No Place for Truth. It's an interesting book. Even if you don't read it, just pick it up and look at the cover. It's a picture of a church. Title of the book, No Place for Truth. What happens when the church loses sight of Christ, its Savior? Listen to how he puts it, and I think it might help your thinking. This problem of Christ missing as the focal point in the church today is not like the abduction of a child who is happily playing at home one minute and then is no longer to be found the next. No one has abducted Christ in this sense. The disappearance is closer to what happens in homes where children are ignored and, to all intents and purposes, abandoned. They remain in the home, but they have no place in the family. So it is with Christ in the church. He remains on the edges of evangelical life, but has been dislodged from its center. And what an irony that is. Christianity is supposed to be about Christ. But it's so easy for us to lose sight of Christ. And, and what a tragedy it is when we know as Christians, Jesus Christ is to have preeminence in everything. That's Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Have that text stick in your mind today, even throughout our study. Christ is to have preeminence in all things. And in Colossians 1, it's because of what He's done. He's done everything necessary. He is the supreme one. He is the one who's made God known to us. He is our redeemer. He is our justifier. He is our everything. And so therefore, He's to have preeminence. And the tragedy comes then. Christ having preeminence everywhere. Well, we of all people as professing Christians in the church should, should see Him as having preeminence. What a tragedy it is when we, of all people, don't deny Christ, but we don't see Him as preeminent. And that's a real danger for us. So today, in one sense, I'm in recruiting mode to, to join me in the quest, to join me in the stand, if you will, so that we might fellowship together in this and having Christianity be truly Christian, to have it be truly about Christ. That would be our goal today as we go through this study. To help us along the way, I'm going to offer seven tragic outcomes of losing Christ in Christianity. Seven tragic outcomes of losing Christ in Christianity. 
first hour, they were so interested and so intrigued and such good listeners. I only got three done. So if I get all seven done today, I don't know what that says about you. I actually do. So, so, so we're going to look at the first three of seven this morning. I've already added an eighth, so maybe we'll be in bonus round later. I don't know. Um, if you're really a bad listener, we'll do eight this morning, I guess. Um, we're going to look at three of these tragedies. When we as a church, when you as a Christian, when we as a Christian culture, as far as the, the church culture is concerned, when we lose sight of Christ being key and central, these are the traps we're going to find ourselves in. These are the tragedies we will face. Number one on my list, and purposely so, is what I want to call moralism. Moralism. And if you feel more comfortable like I do with an open Bible when you're in church, uh, we won't get to it yet, but you can open your Bible to Galatians chapter 1. It's good to feel uncomfortable when you're in church and there's no Bible open. So let me help you out. Um, go, turn to Galatians 1. We're not quite there yet, but we're going to get to that when we talk about moralism and the danger of moralism. But as you find your way there, let me explain moralism, moralism a little bit by hearing from a couple of contemporary voices. Albert Muller who I respect and appreciate in his cultural observance from a theological mind, says this, the basic structure of moralism comes down to this, the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. The moralist impulse in the church reduces the Bible to a code book for human behavior and substitutes moral instruction for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, what we do is we come to church and we might open our Bibles and I can say, let's mine the Bible for timeless truths and moral principles and let me categorize these principles for you and what you need to do is follow these principles and that's what Christians do. Al Mohler is going to say, that's moralism. There's no gospel. We're looking for the wrong things in the Bible. And we're dislodging Christ from the center. We still might use his name. He's not been abandoned. He's just been ignored. A little bit more edgy would be Mike Horton in his statement about moralism. Wherever the story of David and Goliath is used to motivate you to think about the Goliaths in your life. Snicker, snicker, snicker. Ever heard that? And the seven stones of victory used to defeat them. You have been the victim, Horton says, of moralistic preaching. The same is true whenever the primary intention of the sermon is, give, is to give you a Bible hero to emulate or a villain to teach a lesson, like crime doesn't pay or sin doesn't really make you happy. Reading or hearing the Bible in this way turns the scripture into sort of Aesop's fables, where the story exists for the purpose of teaching a lesson to the wise, and the story ends with, and they lived happily ever after. In his Screwtape Letters, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis's book, where you've got the, the, the elder demon training the younger demon on how to mess things up in Christianity, fictitious but pretty insightful, Horton says this, in his Screwtape Letters, Lewis has Screwtape writing Wormwood in the attempt to persuade Wormwood to undermine the faith by turning Jesus into a great hero and moralist. Isn't that interesting? Let me show you how to mess things up and to get Christianity to not be true to its name, Christ. 
He doesn't suggest they get rid of the Bible. He doesn't suggest they deny Jesus. He suggests that instead of having Jesus as the great Savior who atones for our sins and reconciles us to God, that he's the great teacher. That he gives great principles that you can follow and God will be happy. Moralism. Horton further observes, we say Christ alone in our doctrine of salvation, but in actual practice, our devotional life is saturated with sappy and trivial principles, and the preaching is often directed toward motivating us through practical tips. In my opinion, this is the greatest danger Omaha Bible Church faces. It's not the only one. It's the greatest danger we face as a church. It's the greatest danger you face as a Christian. It's happened time and time again over the centuries. We start off on the right foot and we drift away. We don't deny the Bible is true. We don't deny Jesus is a, really, a real Savior. But before you know it, we turn the whole thing into principles to follow. And if you follow these principles that we've gleaned from the life of David, God will be pleased with you. Or the life of Ruth. Or the life of Esther or whoever it might be. It's moralism. It's moralism if it's not ultimately pointing to Christ because he's the only savior. And we, we need to have this in our minds. As a church, we struggle to find children's curriculum because the children's curriculum is all about the deity of Daniel. It's all about the righteousness of Ruth. Instead of listening more closely to David, and realizing David himself, Romans chapter 4, points to Christ. It's a challenge. It's a huge challenge. Sermon after sermon, lesson after lesson, is not about the preeminence of Christ. Oh, it's something in the Bible, but not in its natural context. Because if it was in its natural context, it would point to the preeminence of Christ. How about this? Be like Daniel. Be brave. And go to hell. Last time I checked, the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that all would include Daniel. Now, please don't misunderstand. There's a place for being brave. And I would want to show my children that Daniel was brave because he's trusting in God. But we don't always finish the statement and explanation. Please don't teach my children to dare to be a Daniel if that's all you're going to tell them. Dare to be a brave sinner and go to hell brave. Dare to be like David. Oh, in his adultery? Or his murder. Dare to be like David perhaps. Seeing himself as the utter moral failure that he was. And in Romans chapter 4 rather clearly quoting a psalm. Seeing his need for righteousness. Righteousness that wasn't his. Moralism is going to kill this church. If we are not by the grace of God. Seeing Jesus Christ as preeminent in all things. 
Galatians chapter 1 is a very helpful text when it comes to to having this sorted out in our minds. Galatians is one of those white-knuckle books where the gloves come off because the Apostle Paul is so alarmed. I hope we're as alarmed as he is, if not more alarmed. He is so alarmed that this is happening amongst professing Christians. Galatians 1, 6 says, I am astonished. I'm shaken up. I'm, I'm, I'm unsettled. I'm troubled. I'm astonished that you, professing Christians, are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. I'm so anguished by this. I'm so troubled by this. You say you believe in Jesus. You're not denying the reality of that, but by your practice and by what you're doing, you're denying the reality of that. You're listening to these false teachers who come in and say, oh yes, Jesus, yes, 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 we know that, all that. But, but you also have to follow these laws. We can tone it down and use a little bit different words and the idea is the same. You have to follow these principles that we glean from the scriptures. Please, please understand that the Judaizers who were infecting the church at Galatia were not atheists. They were people who believed the Bible to be true, that, that it gives us all the principles that we should live by. They were those kinds of people, the Judaizers were. They, were, they, were the, they had all the jewels in Awana. I mean, they, 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 they knew the Bible. And they're saying, it can't just be Jesus. It can't just be Him. You can't just only trust in Him. There's a lot of other data in this Bible, and there are a lot of commands, and you need to be busy following them. And Paul says, you're deserting the faith. It's a different gospel. It's not really a gospel. Because Christ is it. He's the preeminent one. He is the one who came to do all of the work. He followed all the principles. He could dare to be a Daniel times a million because he was always doing what's brave and right. It's about him. Preeminently so. Let's keep reading in Galatians and we can see this in chapter 2 just to get a sampling of it. It's about the finished work of Christ and emphasizing that and not deserting that. 2.16 is very helpful, yet we know that a person is not justified, not declared righteous, not, not in an acceptable state before God by works of the law. For our intents and purposes, read biblical principles. But through faith, Trust that is in Christ, in Jesus Christ, so that we also have, who have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. That's in a right standing before God. By faith in Him, by faith in His finished work in Christ and not by works of the law. Not by following biblical principles. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Our freedom is in Jesus. Our freedom is in Christ. We're not doing anybody any favors by saying, oh yes, that's fine, and let me give you more to do. They're not going to be able to do it. It's going to lead to self-righteousness, which is a delusion, or it's going to lead to total defeatism, which is tragic. Instead of saying, trust in Christ. Trust in Him. He's the hero. He's the one that did it all. And maybe just to bring this home a little bit more, I've used David and Ruth and Esther and Daniel. Let me use Jesus. We could be really, really good moralists. Because after all, we don't follow the principles from those other people. We just follow the principles from Jesus. 
And if that's all you mean by that, you're going to hell. Jesus didn't come into the world to merely be an example. Jesus did not come into the world. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus came into the world to lead us down the path that we should all follow. That's a different religion. That's Christless Christianity. Christianity says this. Christ came into the world to save sinners. People who would be so utterly bad and backward at following him, they would go the other direction. He's the savior before he's the example. Yes, he is an example, absolutely. And once he is our atoning savior, yes, we're thankful unto him and we want to do what he says and we want to follow him. But salvation is not by following him because if it were, why in the world did he die a sinner's death on the cross? He wouldn't have needed to. He could have just taught biblical principles from his own life. You see how we can, we can just be off such a little bit and actually be facing the scolding of Galatians. I'm outraged. <laughs> Who has bewitched you? Christianity is about the finished work of Christ before it is about anything else. And I plead with you as a pastor to see things that way. And in your sphere of influence, in the ministry that the Lord has given you or will give you, in your world and the world you live in, that you, when you speak of Christianity, that it's really Christianity, not a different religion under the same name. And you say, well, then we're just always going to talk about Jesus. Yeah. You might be brighter than the first hour. <laughs> That's right, we are. And how great is that? How, how great is it? I'm sitting here this morning, uh, sitting here listening to the song that was sang for the offertory, and it's a gospel song reminding me about me being dead in trespasses and sins, nothing I've done, it's all that Christ has done, and His work is finished, and that's resonating with me. I'm saying, praise God for this great reality of the gospel, because the reality is I'm a sinner, and I've been living the life of a sinner all week long doesn't mean there isn't fruit in my life. It doesn't mean the Spirit of God hasn't uh, regenerated me. It doesn't mean uh, I'm not seeing sanctification or spiritual growth. But the reality is, I'm still a sinner. I need to be reminded of that great gospel. Christ having preeminence. Remember back in Romans, Paul writes Romans, which is about the gospel, to the church at Rome at the time, and they're already Christians. Why? Because Christ is preeminent. And they never are to move past the reality of that. I don't want us to ever move past the reality of that. We are so close to moving past the reality of that, though, all the time. All the time. Let's look at a second tragic outcome, which is like the first. It really could be under number one, but let's look at it as number two, and let's call it legalism. Let's call it legalism. We could, you could write down Galatians as our text, um, but let's, let's go to Matthew chapter 5. And if I forget to actually get to Matthew chapter 5, someone shake your Bible at me or something. I realize this is a different kind of study for us, but 
I think, helpful nonetheless. Legalism. Legalism is when you take the law, the divine law, or human law, depending on which kind of legalism we're talking about, and, and you say, if you follow these things, God will accept you. Galatians confronts legalism just like it confronts moralism. Legalism is, is a kind of moralism. Moralism is a kind of legalism, maybe I should say. Do these things and God will accept you. And most everyone in this room can spot an old school legalist. You know, kind of mean, scolding. Lots of stuff that the Bible doesn't talk about, but rules and regulations so we can live a more devoted life or something. Say that's legalism. But there are other kinds of legalism. There's, there's the legalism with a million-dollar smile. I don't have one, so I can't even imitate it. I had braces, at least, but it was a long time ago. There's that kind of legalism, the soft-sell legalism. It's nice. And if you follow these seven principles, you can have your best life now. That's legalism. Seven principles. Translation, seven laws to follow. And if you follow these seven laws, then you will be happy. That's soft sell, new school legalism. But it's just as deadly as the old kind. There's no hope because there's no gospel. There's no good news. Quite, quite frankly, I'm not very good at following principles. I'm not very good at following laws. I'm a sinner. I'm just not good at it. It's, it's, it's anti my nature. I'm a rebel at heart. Now, there's something in me that likes to kind of try to try to do it that way because I, I like self-righteousness, which is another kind of sin. And so I'm drawn to that kind of stuff. And that's why those books are the bestsellers because we're all kind of legalistic at heart, either old school or new school. But what we need is not that. That's just more bondage, more self-righteousness. We need someone who came into the world to fulfill the law. We need someone who came into the world and did all of the right principles, the biblical principles, perfectly on behalf of us principle breakers, us law breakers. And we know him as Jesus. It's Matthew chapter 5. Remember, remember Matthew chapter 5. I'm glad I just did. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 is a great, great life verse. You would never probably pick it as a life verse. And maybe as you mature as a Christian, you see how important this is. All of a sudden, it becomes very important. Matthew five seventeen. Jesus said, Do not think that I came, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. I came to be the obeyer of all the principles. I came to obey the law. I came to fulfill the law. God has a divine requirement. And when you don't meet God's requirement, then you pay the just consequence. And God says the just consequence is condemnation. We're all in lots of trouble. A lot of good it's going to be to throw us a life raft of more principles. Thank you very much for the 50-pound dumbbell. Does it come with a noose? That's not right. That's not loving. That's not kind. Thankfully, the Lord Jesus Christ 
didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He came to do all of the right things so that then by faith, when you trust in him, his righteous law keeping, his perfect law keeping is credited to your account so that God can then see you, the sinner that you are, (laughs) with a big smile, as if you're a perfect law keeper. And God can then, as the Bible says in Romans, be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law. It's absolutely good news. (laughs) This is gospel news. But it's the very opposite of legalism. And when we forget that Christ is preeminent in everything, we are going to fall into the trap of legalism. We must, we will, I will, And before you know it, it's about us. It's about us. I think I could preach a legalistic, moralistic sermon every Sunday and use Bible verses every Sunday. I think I could do expository preaching or at least what would pass as expository preaching. See, what I'm not saying is what I should say, I have. following biblical principles. No preeminence of Christ. No gospel hope. Not loving, not kind, not gracious. I think I could do it every week. And some of you would be outraged. Some of you would be my friend and say, Pastor, give me Jesus. Some of you would say, thank you for that sermon. Those are some helpful principles. I don't want you to be that latter person. I want you to be the former person. And when you read a book, I want you to be the person that says, is this truly and distinctly a Christian book like it claims? And if it is, it's not going to be about all these things that you must do in order to achieve happiness. It's going to ultimately point to the perfect work of Jesus who fulfilled the law. And you will find true, genuine happiness being reconciled to God by being reminded of the gospel. And oh, then, by the way, you're going to want to obey. But it's after atonement, in light of atonement, not for atonement. Not to deal with your guilt. And you say, that seems like a fine line. That's not a fine line. That's, that's, that's a huge line, right? That's a line of between different religions. You've got to remember that Christ is the hero of it all. I was at a church not too long ago. I have the, the bulletin here. And... Uh, I read the statement here, who we are, what we believe. You know, it's Bible-based verses, texts. I'm not sure if there's anything on here I noticed that wasn't biblical. But I would like your evaluation of it. Let's pretend like we go to coffee. And I'm going to ask you what you think of this. 
Statement number one, defining the church. Central principle number one. I'm going to slide it over to your side. If you get it wrong, you buy me ventis all year long. And if you get it right, I buy you ventis all year long. I would like it if every single person in this room could at least figure this out. Probably not there. And if you're not there, I'm not scolding you. There's a reason we're here. Central principle for a Christian church believes the Bible to be true, believes the virgin birth, believes the resurrection, believes all of those kinds of things that are good and right and proper. Central principle number one. Defining the church. Obey the great commandment. Mark 12. Subpoints to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love neighbors as ourselves. Number one principle for us as a church, if this was our church, we obey the great commandment. We love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. Would you like to join this church? What defines Christianity at its very essence? The fact that we're all law keepers. Remember, Jesus said that is the law. That's the essence of the law. Omaha Bible Church, let's use it for our own. We keep the law of God. The next statement after this is go and make disciples. So not only do we as a church keep the law of God, we go to all nations telling them to keep the law of God too. And in that, there's good news. My friends, I'm sure it was a mistake. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is not about the fact that we keep the law of God. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. There's nothing said in here about the gospel, quite frankly. Christianity is about the gospel that Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly and he came not to get rid of the law, but to fulfill the law. If our our message is, we as a church love God and keep his commandments, we're so self-deluded, we're all going to hell. And let's make disciples of all nations so that they can go to hell too. Because no one keeps the law. No, not one, Romans 3 says. So when we lead with our church's central principle number one is we're good law keepers here. We are legalists to the bone. you got to see that. Your eyes have to be open to that. Central to Christianity is, you know, hint, hint, hint. It's the cross of Christ. That's why Paul would come to town and he wouldn't come to town saying, we preach to everyone that they should keep the law of God. Unless he's doing it to smoke out their inability and their condemnation. That would be appropriate and right. We preach Christ crucified. The message of Christianity is the message of the work of Jesus Christ who is preeminent. Please don't misunderstand. The law is good and righteous. The Bible teaches that. Old Testament, New Testament. Absolutely. Jesus himself says that's the essence of the law. But the essence of Christianity isn't the law. And you say, you're getting kind of worked up about this. I know I'm perspiring. This is like the most greatest thing I would ever get worked up about. 
When Christians don't know what Christianity is. And, and here I'm a pastor. The Bible says I'm supposed to preach the word of God. The, the Bible says I'm supposed to keep watch over people's souls. Didn't sign up for that. I'm trying to keep watch over your soul right now by saying, if you think that Christianity is about your law keeping, we have a class for you. We've got to help you understand Christianity. Christianity is about Christ who fulfilled the law. You see why I'm getting worked up about this? I hope you see why I'm getting worked up about this. And you know where this probably comes from? This mistake, this oversight? Because week in and week out, we hear about principles from the life of David. Law. We hear about principles from the life of Daniel. Law and Esther. Let's make sure we get some ladies in the guilt trip too. And it's no wonder we say, yeah, we're all good law keepers around here. There's no gospel. Pastor, give me gospel. Tell me about Jesus. We are so messed up when we've gotten to the place where we think the law is the gospel. It's amazing. It's amazing. Please keep your eyes open. Please pay attention in the books that you read. Please pay attention when you hear the sermon series. It's all about B, 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 B. If it's not first about trust, 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 you're listening to legalism, moralism. But remember, I could use the Bible to do this. I could use the four gospel accounts to do this. More principles from the life of Jesus. And I could be preaching from the Christian book a non-Christian message. Remember Matthew in the very beginning says, you'll call him Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. That sets the tenor of the whole book. Oh, he's not just showing us how to live. No, he's come to save us. He's come to save us. This is so important. That's a good case study, and I've used it before, but I want to use it again for the sake of clarification. We're not going to miss it. I still want us to miss this. If you do that in Matthew, by the way, then you get to chapter 4, I think it is, with the temptation of Jesus. You're going to read that totally different. You know that the letter was written to show us about Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. And you read chapter 4 about the temptation and you're not going to say, Oh, first and foremost, Jesus came to show us principles for overcoming temptation. Quote the Bible. Principle number one. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm really glad he quoted the Bible. Don't get me wrong. Secondarily, that's a good, that, that's, that's a good principle to follow. When you're tempted and Satan tempts you, quote the Bible. Good job. But first and foremost, the book is about how Je- explaining how Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And so I read it differently. And by the way, I'm trying to read my Bible more holistically and how it all fits together. And, you know, Jesus is called the second Adam, the last Adam. Huh. And uh, the first Adam was tempted by Satan and led the human race into sin. Isn't it interesting that the last Adam is tempted by Satan and he does the right thing as our representative? 
Now praise and glory and honor go to the one who is preeminent. And not me, because I've gleaned great principles. Oh, that's secondary. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But first and foremost, he's my savior. You see? Changes everything. Changes everything. I loved what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said in the 1800s in London. See, this was not a problem. It's not a problem just in our day. He said, the motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and Him crucified. A sermon without Christ is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. He had a way with words. right say to me pastor go home and never preach again unless you have something worth preaching and that's something by the way is someone and his name is jesus now if we avoid this legalism i gave you a text right matthew 5 galatians and really in all seriousness matthew chapter 5 is is a deal maker I live in the world of Matthew 5. <laughs> Fulfill the law. I want you to live in that world too. A huge objection is going to be if we let the cat out of the bag and tell people it's all what Jesus did and not what you do. Oh man, it's going to be anarchy. It's going to be spiritual chaos. People are going to live like the devil. And so we, we better at least mix in some law principles along the way or it's just going to get out of control. Other people thought like that. And that was their objection to the Apostle Paul. After five chapters of it's only by grace, only through faith, in the finished work of Christ, it's all of Jesus. He is our righteousness. We're justified by faith, justified by faith, justified by faith. It's all the work of Christ. And the objection came. And in our verbiage, it's, then people are going to live however they want to live. We can't do that. And in Romans chapter 6, he says, no, you're wrong. Because if you're united with Christ by faith, you've been united in his death. And you've died to sin. And you've been united in his resurrection. And so now you live unto righteousness. It really is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But it doesn't end there. There's a whole lot more to it. Right? So if people accuse you of making it too easy, you're in really good company. If no one ever accuses you of making it too easy, you might be a legalist. something to think about Christ is preeminent his work is done we're trusting in him and him alone isn't that good it's great hope hope let me give you hope it's not what you do let me assault you more principles Now again, the principles come as a result of, in light of, 
But I think we better be really careful to never assume. Because before you know it, we're assuming and we're saying things like this. There is no gospel. None at all. See why I get worked up about stuff like this? Yeah, this is, this is worth getting worked up about. You have friends who are in bondage to this whole thing. I know you do. You might be in bondage to this whole thing. The loving and kind thing to do is to help them understand the one who fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled the law. There's real hope in that. Be a loving, kind person. Help them. It might hurt a little in the short run, but help them. Help them. Don't throw them a brick. Help them. Well, let's move on now to a third tragic outcome if we lose the centrality of Christ and Christianity and let's call it narcissism. Narcissism. John MacArthur says, it calls it narcissistic navel watching. Um, kind of a gross image of uh, being selfish. That's what we're talking about. And when we forget that Christ is preeminent in everything, and if you turn to Revelation chapter 5 once again, we forget that Christ is preeminent in everything, certainly in Christianity, bears his name. When we forget that, it's going to be a short, short spell before we're into narcissism. It's all about us. It's about me. It's about my needs. It's about my feelings. It's about my hurts. It's about my wants. It's about my desires. And we forget that it's ultimately about Jesus. Now, thankfully, Jesus did something great. He receives all the glory, but he did something great for us. So thankfully, we're certainly uh, the ones who benefit from what he's done. He did love us and give himself up for us. He causes us to be born again. He does all these wonderful things, and we benefit from them. Yes, 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 yes. But at the end of the day, he's to receive all the glory and honor. And think about how practical this is for the life of the church. It's tremendously practical. It's so much bigger than me, and it's so much bigger than you. It's so much bigger than us. It's about him and his supreme worth. Let's read Revelation chapter 5, verse 12 again. 12, 13, and 14. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a great, first hour I said preview, but that's not good because it's more than a preview. It's a a foretaste that we have now of that. But that's going to be worship in its fullness. Worship in its pure sense gives Christ all of the what? All of the glory, all of the honor, uh, the attention goes to him. He uses the word glory at least a couple times in there. Our, Our attention is riveted upon him and his worthiness and his greatness and his love and his splendor. And here we are as Christians, and this is a Christian assembly, and we come together and we hear the Word of God and and we sing the Word of God and we have the Lord's Supper together and we pray and we fellowship, but it's all meant to be Christian worship, and Christian worship by definition is the worship of Christ, which should in a good and right sense overshadow everything else. 
Instead of, well, that didn't make me feel very good. Or I'm not sure that that met all my felt needs. Or whatever it might be. As important as those might be. Bigger than that is the glory of the King. The glory of Christ. And isn't it interesting? Please don't don't miss this. Isn't it interesting? In Revelation chapter 5, this worthiness and glory and honor is tied to what he's done. Remember, we read the whole text earlier. He's redeemed from every tribe, tongue, nation. He's the great redeemer. Therefore, he receives all the glory and all the honor. Let me put it in other terms. Because of his great gospel work, he receives all of the glory, all the, the supreme attention. Now let me put some of these principles together and show you how they overlap. We're tied up in legalism or we're tied up in moralism and all of this do this, do this, do this that forgets and eclipses the gospel. It's no wonder we're narcissistic. We've forgotten what Jesus has done and it's just all been about how good I am at doing principles. Right? And so now all of a sudden I need some glory. Come on. And now all of a sudden you offend me or I offend you. And we've forgotten about the gospel because the pastor's just been doing deity of Daniel sermons. We're not equipped. The gospel or the lack of gospel leads to narcissism. It leads to self-centeredness. All the more reason why we have to keep being reminded. You know, I need to be reminded that as Christ, God in Christ has forgiven me much, I forgive much. But if I'm not hearing that, I'm not being reminded of that, it's pretty tough for me to get over what you did to me. It's pretty tough for you to get over what I did to you. Because we're not thinking Christianly. Oh, we're still singing the songs, maybe. We still have Bibles because we have principles to follow. (laughs) I need to remember the gospel. I need to be reminded. And all of a sudden now, I can come to grips and be reminded that I deserve to go to hell. Even my good religious works. Oh man, the pastor quoted Isaiah again. Filthy rags. Offensive socially and religiously. Enemy of God. Child of wrath by nature. Not a good principle follower. And he forgave me. And he credited me with the perfect righteousness of Jesus that I didn't deserve to receive. Here's the other cheek. (laughs) You know? Thank you, sir. May I have another? (laughs) Doesn't mean we should be rude and crude to each other because the gospel covers a multitude of sins. (laughs) On a practical level, the Bible says more than this. But it does, it does provide a basis for forgiveness and understanding and being about something more than just us. Being about the gospel, being about the Lord's work and having the sanity and the clarity of mind to be able to do that. Let me end with with a challenge to us as a church um, regarding this. 
and it's called consumerism. It's not anotherism, by the way, just number three, narcissism. Um, but, but think about this now as a church family. Here we are gathered. Um, many of you are members of this church. Some of you are visiting. We're glad you're here visiting. Let's, let's think in terms of members of this church. Most people in this room, I would guess, are committed to this, at least in theory. The glory of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, not self-centeredness. Enough of you are tracking with me, and I think we're, we're on the same page when it would come to that. There is a particular challenge for us, even as a church, as we seek to do ministry in Omaha, Nebraska, and beyond. And it's consumerism. And not that people haven't always been selfish because they have been. But we haven't always had a consumer society quite like we have. It's a challenge for us. A challenge so you need to commit all the more to saying we're about the glory of Christ no matter what. You see, because sometimes when people come here and they hear about the glory of Christ, it wasn't what they were looking for. It wasn't quite stroking them. And we always have, as a church, a decision to make. Do we need to be about something other than the glory of Christ ultimately? We're always making that decision. Because those people might not come back. What if more and more people don't come back? Little tests from God. Consumerism is a good test. By the way, I like being a consumer, don't you? It's nice to have the freedom. When I don't like this cell phone plan, I go to this cell phone company. Once my contract's up. I don't like this restaurant because it has bad service. I go to this restaurant. And it's amazing. One of the things that enables us to be great consumers are cars. But if I don't get stroked at the church and feel good about it, I've got a car. I go somewhere else until I find the church that's right for me. I'm not suggesting there's never a time to leave a church. But it's not when your feelings get hurt or your felt needs don't get met. Because we're supposed to be about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us sinners who keep sinning and need forgiveness. It's about the glory of Christ who has preeminence in the church. And we've got to remember that. Worthy is the Lamb to receive glory and honor and dominion. As professing Christians, by the grace of God, let's act like Christians. And have Christ be preeminent and not us. Fair? Privilege is what it is, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for the great delight it is to know the Lord Jesus Christ. May we find ourselves speaking clearly about him. May we find ourselves speaking with joy in our hearts about him. Help us as a church here at Omaha Bible Church. Sinful as we may be, help us. To keep the message clear. To have Christ be preeminent. Keep working on us as the, the faithful gardener that you are. As you prune 
and as you cut back and as you care for us, Lord, help us to to bear much fruit for the glory of Christ. We are so thankful to be gospel people. In Jesus' name, amen.